Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Hey, no Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Nothing, nothing really true. All day long, like something up. Are they the vegans of countries? Like, they have to tell you that? They're the vegans, they're the crossfitters, they're the soul cyclers. That's Canada. Before COVID started, all I wanted to do was be a travel writer. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Eben. Today we've got an exciting pod for you with my friend Catherine Tanzi, who I met when I was down in Oaxaca, Mexico, a little over a year ago. Uh, we were in the same co-working space and uh, kind of we had a little group of friends in the co-working space and, and she was one of them, a real cool person, avid uh, avid journalist, freelancer down there in Oaxaca who has uh, been there for two years and is going to share some insight on being an expatriate during COVID, which is something that has been on my mind a lot because I have not been abroad in like 11 months now. And uh, it's, it's itching. I'm itching for it. Evan. It's eating at him. I can tell, I can tell it's eating at him. He's, he's, he's like jonesing right now. Uh, he's yeah. trembling. According to Tim, Mexico kind of redefines the co-working space game. Uh, I mean, I, the few co-working spaces I've seen in the U S are fairly boring. They're basically just like, rooms with some desks and everyone kind of keeps to themselves and listens to their headphones and no one talks this place in oaxaca sounds like an absolute party it sounds like Tomorrowland if you listen to tim and i don't know it sounds like a sounds like a good time yeah the spot's called convivio it's a music venue uh slash bar in the evenings in a co-working space during the day and i believe according to their instagram they're also serving asian food now so it's quite a diverse place. Uh, when it sounds I was like there, the worst. It sounds like the absolute worst place ever for productivity. It compared to compared to what you would expect at a co working space, it kind of is because it is a very it's it's a more social place than than most co working spaces. It's certainly not a place where everybody's sitting there with their headphones on all day. Um, but that I mean that's kind of the thing about co working is is some people love it and some people don't. Like I I personally love it. I kind of get why some people don't feel it's justified to pay uh to go work somewhere when you don't have to go somewhere to go to work uh but to me like i've met friends clients all kinds of stuff at co-working spaces over the years and especially when i'm on the road it's a good good way to meet people anyway what's going on uh, in fort collins these days evan uh not a whole lot i'm still uh keeping up my quest to learn how to golf which is tough in the winter but we do have a few nice days here we had it was 64 the other day so I hit wow. the driving range and I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if anyone out there who's, who golfs can t- write and tell me if this is a common occurrence, but I was hitting balls at the range about three quarters of the way through the head flew off of my driver, just flew right off mid mid stroke. It was like middle of my backstroke. The club felt a little lighter and I looked up and the head was flying down the range. And everyone else around was just like staring at me like, dude, what are you doing? How does that even happen? I have no idea how that happens. Absolutely no idea. I asked the guy. There's a guy kind of walking around. I was like, dude, so 
someone might want to go collect that uh that head off that driver uh i don't know how that happened he says i was like is this does that happen a lot like is that is, have you seen that before he looks at me he says honestly i've been here for six years and this is the first time i've ever seen that so wow. that made me feel really good it might be time to invest in some new clubs buddy i yeah i don't know i mean <laughs> I just didn't. I thought that there was all one piece. I didn't even know the, the, the head was a separate thing that could come off. I thought it was just all one club. So um, might 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 have a temporary ban from that place. I don't know. Have to, we'll have to see. But I I might have just gotten myself a nice little suspension. We'll, we'll have to see. All right. Well, uh, we'll get into the interview with Catherine here, and we will see you on the other side. All right, Catherine Tansy, welcome to the No Blackout Dates podcast. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I met you in Oaxaca, which was, I don't know, 14 or 15 months ago now, probably. And we were in the same co-working space, which is how we met, Convivio. Uh, Shout out to them. And the first thing that I noticed when I got to Oaxaca and started working there was that the vibe in Convivio, and even in the town, but in particular in Convivio, was strikingly different from co-working spaces in else other places that I've been to. And I'll contrast it directly with Bali, where in Bali, everybody is freaking drinking green smoothies and like doing yoga on the patio at the co-working space. And in Convivio, everyone is drinking mezcal and staring out the window. From like <laughs> 2 p.m. on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious when you well, first of all, what brought you to Oaxaca in the first place? I came to Oaxaca. I so I spent a year in Asia when I was 23, and, and then I was on vacation in Mexico a few years later. Two years later, I spent three weeks by myself in Mexico, and I was thinking about returning to Asia. I didn't really know what to do, but I was on the other side of Mexico. I fell in love with Mexico. I thought like I would love to improve my Spanish. Um, I could hang out here for a while. And I don't know, guys, Oaxaca just like kept coming into my life. Like, I remember one day in particular, my mom called me and she was like, what time are you coming home for dinner? I'm making black beans from Oaxaca. It was just like very random all the time. And um, I arrived here and I thought I was just going to stay for three or four months. And that was two years ago. So it's definitely home now. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. What's what's the deal with with getting into a community in Oaxaca? How did you find people? How did you find friends? How did you make it home? Man, honestly, like co-working space was my way in. And that was part of the reason I selected Oaxaca, actually. Now that you've asked me that question, I'm realizing that like I knew that I didn't want to be staying in hostels. Like once you get to a certain age and you want to be in a place a little bit more permanently, the idea of hostels just becomes, you know, infinitely less attractive. And right. I thought like, okay, I've stayed in Airbnbs before. It's really hard to meet people. I need a co-working space. Also, because like you need to, I need to get out of my own space to get work done. Um, but more for community. So like for me, Convivio, the co-working space Convivio was instrumental in building my community here. And you just meet people through it. And then like networking happens, right? Then you meet other people through the people you've met there. Um, but like Oaxaca is definitely a very special place in that there are a lot of people who have decided to stay. Um, but I think we've probably all experienced the thing like as travelers as like when you're trying to suss out like how serious a person is about being in a, in a, in a place because you get kind of sick of just 
three days here, four days here. Like at this point in my life in Oaxaca, I'm not interested in like hanging out with someone who's here for four or five days. Like I have a boyfriend, so I'm not looking to get laid. And also like, yeah, I've got my own, I have friends. I'm like cool with that. So I think when you find a community center, whether it's a co-working space or if you're involved in the arts, like exhibitions or whatever it may be, and you can connect with people who are either planning on staying there for a while longer or have already developed a life in a place, like that's the way to do it. Uh, do you think that there's any level of cultural appropriation uh, in all of the expats in Oaxaca? Um, and I would say particularly those that come and don't take the time to learn any Spanish, but I, I don't know. What What are your thoughts on on expatriating to a very different culture uh and and trying to call it your home i guess yeah man i don't know i asked myself that question right and like the way i think i've made myself a little more comfortable with my own role in that is like kind of what you mentioned like my spanish i speak a bit of spanish like i have committed to to learning about the culture and learning the language and making friends who are maybe not only oaxaqueño but Mexican. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a level of that. Um, I try not to be too judgmental or point fingers at other people because yeah, you have to recognize your own role in it. But I mean, I definitely roll my eyes, especially when I hop on social media and I see people at places like Yerra de Agua or, or um especially in the indigenous communities, I think, but like, who am I? Cause I'm not a member of the indigenous community. I'm not someone who could say like, this is unacceptable. This is disrespectful to my right. culture. So that's where it gets really tricky. Right. It's tough to get mad at, it's tough to get mad at Americans for appropriating a culture that you are not a representative of. I've always wondered this at what stage is it? Can you appropriate a culture and it's acceptable? Like, if I live in the place for a long time, right. is it never acceptable? If you marry someone who's from there, like when right. can I appropriate a culture? Well, and to what level, right? Like, can I wear a weepil, which is like the traditional woven textile, like shirt dress of this area? Like, can I wear that? I do sometimes. Because like the people who are, who are seemingly most judgmental about that are other expats. Probably people that, that yeah, are the ones that don't take the time to learn Spanish uh, at least enough to Mm -hmm. get by and don't embed themselves with locals at all. They just come and hang out in their expat bubble, um, which is an interesting thing to do. Like it was when I was there, I was only there for a month and a half. So it's not like I had enough time to really embed myself in anything. I made a few friends, but uh, I found myself kind of grappling with that. Like I have in other places that I've spent, you know, weeks weeks in you know it's like i am the white guy that's coming here and trying to you know experience this thing that is not mine at all uh and and i'm trying to be here long enough that i can almost prove to myself that maybe i have a little part of that in me even though i don't and i felt that a lot recently because i don't know what has happened probably like COVID fatigue, right? But like in the last, I would say seven to 10 days, there have been a lot more tourists in El Centro, like whether they're American, I think they're mostly American or European. And a lot of them are not wearing masks on the street and like, okay, I don't care 
how you feel about that. Or like, if right. you're like, no science says if we're six feet away, we don't need to be wearing masks. Like if you're coming to a place and the culture is such that people are wearing them on the street and in parks, like wear your fucking mask on the street and in parks, like you don't get to decide. And so that I've seen a lot of that, but I've also just seen, I've been seeing a lot of travelers and tourists. And I'm getting this thing. Like shouldn't be coming here. We're in the middle of a coronavirus, like a pandemic. But then I'm like, okay, Catherine, you're not a local business person. You're not a local hotelier. You don't own a restaurant here. Like if you're able to think about it from these people's perspective, they're probably quite happy to have a small uptick in revenue because like basically the world has shut down. Right. So I've had a lot of moments of catching myself. Judgment is a funny thing. It really is. Especially when you're living in another place. All right. Well, uh, how how about writing? What are you doing these days, and how do you feel? Uh, how do you feel about the remote work space Man, during I COVID? Like, <laughs> I feel like before COVID started, all I wanted to do was be a travel writer. But really, like what I was mostly writing about was business. And then, like after the pandemic, I feel like very fortunate to have been somebody who wrote a lot about HR and like the human resource space. Because turns out COVID was a fucking disaster for that. Um, yeah. Right. But like, I mean, I think that all of the people who, I think it's it's going to be really interesting because for a long time, it felt like the prerequisite for having a remote job was having already been successful in a remote role. And so I think now going forward, like anybody who is a knowledge worker, who is a knowledge worker has been working remotely this year. So everybody has experience working remotely. I mean, I definitely think we won't go back. I I think it will be hybrid model for sure. I know a lot of people who miss the office. I am a freelancer. I never had an office, so I have nothing to miss. But yeah, I mean, I think for sure this is the remote work experiment that nobody asked for, but like a lot of people are happy happened and like a lot of people are going to benefit from. What do you think about it, Evan? Because you, uh, you know, you're somebody that was supposed to be in Europe and are not there, you know, because of this. For a full-time job, Evan, for, uh, no, I was, I was going to just, I was going to live for three months in uh, Amsterdam and then Portugal. Um, but (laughs) I, I, I'm not upset that I'm not there because I don't think I would really get the full experience because nothing's open. So I, it's kind of like, what's the point? Um, but I I don't think I would be in Amsterdam even if they did let me in with tests because of that reason. It's just it's not it's not fun. It's not worth. It's not how I want to spend three months in Europe. But I don't think that black and white just closing off your border to everyone from the U.S. is good for the economy or even necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I I have a uh, this trip booked to Svalbard and at the end of April and it's like. You just don't hear anything because right now Americans are not allowed in Norway. And so it's just like on hold. Like That's the thing. It's like for you not to be allowed in Svalbard, an archipelago of like a thousand people after having like taken two tests, there is no such thing as public gatherings in Svalbard anyway. Like – it's it's absurd that you wouldn't be allowed to go with the proper precautions. But well, and it, you know, yeah, and it feels like with every day that I wake up, like the percentage of the trip actually happening goes down by a percent. Um, so something Evan said about his trip to Europe made me think, like, okay, when you said like if you if you're willing to deal with the check the test and like you have like the ability to do it, why not? 
But like, how do you guys think that the travel industry is going to change as a result of the pandemic? Like realistically people, there are not going to be as many flights anymore. Like people won't be traveling at the same volume and capacity as they once were. So like, do you see the travel space becoming uh, a less inclusive place if you want to, or a place that's like only accessible to people who have a certain amount of money, AKA privilege? Travel in itself will be fine. I think that there will be plenty of it going on. Um, and, and I think it will bounce back eventually. I think that stuff like that is going to, is going to change. I think you're going to see a lot more catering to remote workers now, which probably does in the end, make it more uh, exclusive. Throughout this whole thing, I've lived not in reality, but in a much more optimistic rosy version of reality that I choose to live in. And I don't, I think travel, I think will take a while to come back, but I don't think that it's going to be this big blow to travel. I don't think the flight prices are going to be astronomical for the next 10 years. I think it's going to go back to the way it was. And I think even more so people are going to be wanting to travel because they haven't been able to for like two years. Yeah. So sure. I don't, I don't think that the, the, this travel sphere is going to shrink. I think if anything, it grows. Um, and I think that there might be some more precautions at airports. I think there might be just inherent health measures that hotels and airports just take as common course, um, even post COVID. But I don't think that the, the demand for travel lessens. I don't think that the cost goes up so much that it prevents certain classes of people from never being able to travel. Yeah. I, like I, one thing that's definitely going to stick is the contactless check-in, contactless food pickup, that yeah. kind of stuff. Like I was just in Utah last week and, you know, we b- both time. Well, I guess the, the hotel in Moab was, was a little less so, but the ski resort we were at Eagle point, not once did I ever have an in-person confrontation with the person that worked at the, at the uh, lodging property that we stayed at. There was a keypad on the door. She texted me in advance, all the information I needed. Any question I had, I was texting her about it. Like there was no in-person contact at all. Yeah. And I, I think there's going to be a lot more. I think that stuff is here to stay for sure. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the innovations that have led to a more efficient, streamlined travel mm-hmm. process, I definitely here to stay. And I think that's that's for the best. I think COVID is making a lot of things a lot more efficient. And I honestly, in the end, that's probably for the best. I was going to say, do you think that you would move back to the U.S. at some point? Hmm. I'm like definitely a never say never kind of person because who knows what could happen. What do you what do you like about Mexico that's so much more attractive to you than living in the US? I like having a really multicultural life. I like my boyfriend is from Spain. I like being in a bilingual relationship. I like learning like so he is from Spain. I'm from the States. We live in Mexico. I like that I meet an international crowd of people. And like, I went to school in Boston and like, obviously there are big international communities in all the major cities in the U S and like probably in some of the smaller cities as well. But yeah, I just really enjoy having like an international group of friends and being exposed to cultures and languages that are not my own. It's, I think it just makes life richer and more interesting. It certainly does for me. How is dating during the pandemic? Is this somebody you met during the pandemic? And how did that go? How did that happen? Like, 
I can't. I can't oh even remember God. the last time I like made a new friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We started it. We started dating in January of last year, and we had this like pretty. Yeah, but we also. I mean, by the time the pandemic started, Victor and I had it had been two months, but like he was in Spain and I was at a meditation course. Like we had only been on like five dates, but like it had been over two months. It was very romantic. And then he was like, come stay at my house with me. Like it was scary at the beginning. We were all like, what's happening? I was like, they're shutting down everywhere. Like come stay with me. We didn't even know each other. It was so intense. We're like living together. It was a fucking mess. But a year later, uh, we made it through, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was really, really intense. There was a lot of stress on our relationship. Like, So this guy was a, this guy was a real, this guy was a real opportunist. He was like, perfect pandemic. I can use that as like, my <laughs> he's got nowhere else to go. He's got to come five dates. I can like skip ahead by 17 <laughs> dates and just like get her to move right in. Perfect. I, I think it was, my, I think I was the opportunist there. <laughs> I mean, do you guys find yourself adopting Mexican cultural habits now that you've been there for so long? Is some of this stuff kind of second nature to you? And you're like, oh shit, like I definitely didn't used to do that when I lived in New Hampshire. 100%. First of all, I never use like Spanish words as I was trying to explain something to somebody like I do now, which is like, I recognize how pretentious and ridiculous that seems. But actually, when you're learning another language and you're speaking another language, a lot of the time, your wires just get crossed. Like you can't, sometimes you just can't come up with a word in either language. Um, right. I hate to break it to you, but you've been speaking Spanish yeah. after this interview. And we've just, I didn't want to like tell you without being awkward, but what was your craziest time in Mexico, Tim? Your craziest experience? On Dia de Muertos, that was one of the craziest nights of my life. We were up in this small town partying with the locals until like six in the morning. It was it was nuts. Do people eat sugar sugar skulls there or is that I don't think so. In fact I was like, what is that? <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what that is. Yeah man. It was all mezcal. All mezcal. That was the whole that was the whole month. That's the thing though. Like is that an, is that an American is appropriation? Because to me like Dia de los Muertos is sugar skulls. Like the two things are just synonymous with each other. Yet now I think that it's just an American. They're just, they're like um, a Dia de los Muertos snack that I think Americans may have created. That's just like a giant skull. It's all sugar. It's a hundred percent sugar. There's no other ingredient but sugar. And you're just like, I think you might die if you ate the whole thing. It's like. I'm like picturing something you might find in an Easter basket that but instead is like in October for Dia de los Muertos. <laughs> I, I don't Neither of you know about these? No, I mean, here no. like there's oh, the man. candles that are shaped like the skulls, but like, I don't think, I don't, I've never saw people, I mean, I've only been here for two years. Yeah, they're called cala, calaveras, calaveras, representation of a human skull, often applied to edible or decorative skulls made from sugar or clay. Don't eat the ones that are made from clay. Right, yes. Uh, I don't know about. These. I did not try one of those. I didn't. I'd well, never heard of them until now. Um, so I don't know if if these are readily available, like in Oaxaca, or if like not around Dia de los Muertos. But if you can seek this out and get it, and like <laughs> clear your schedule, just take a day. Like act like you're doing shrooms. Like clear clear the whole schedule, <laughs> and just like have the sugar skull to yourself one day, and then just get real weird on a sugar high because it's 
I haven't had it since middle school, but it's like my fondest memory for middle school is eating sugar skulls. Wait, you were like in Newburyport, Massachusetts, oh, yeah. eating calaveras on Spanish. It was a Spanish class thing. So like every uh, cool. every year that we would do this in our Spanish class and we would make sugar skulls and eat them. And to me, that was like, they acted as though this was just this authentic Mexican tradition, which apparently Mexicans don't even do. So... Dude, I don't know. Maybe they do. I might just be missing out on it, and I might have just thought all the skulls I saw were candles when really they were the sugar skulls. But. Yeah, so that's it. That's my that's my piece on sugar skulls. Last question, then we're gonna we're gonna move into our next segment, which is the listener question. But this one is uh, something that we've started asking lately. At least I have. And what it is? What makes uh, what makes when you're traveling? What makes someplace a good place to stay versus what makes something a bad place to stay long-term. Okay. Things that make a, a place, a good place to stay long-term um, is um, an established community of other people who are interested in the thing that you're doing. Like for a lot of people in Oaxaca, they're interested in textiles. They're interested in ceramics. They're interested in art. So it's a really, really great place to come. If you like have likes to stand on in any of those areas. I think that if you can, if you can find like a common thread by which to connect with people initially, it makes it a lot easier to develop friendships and then, and then like things grow, right. And you can connect with people on lots of different levels. What makes a place a bad place to stay? I think is if it's like too one dimensional, like you don't want to stay in a party place. You don't want to stay in a place that is, like so tranquil that there's no social life. Like, especially for me, I like a little bit of balance. Um, so I would, I would look for places that have that for me, it's access to nature and also like cultural activities. So like Oaxaca has incredible restaurants, cool museums. And then like you can hop on a bus and be in the mountains in an hour, which is just, that was always my favorite thing about Oaxaca actually is like the city itself is really vibrant and small and walkable but you can also get out to the mountains and go hike and mountain bike and do whatever you want, like really quickly. It's almost like it's almost like the Denver of Mexico in that sense, actually. Very different weather. But just a side note for anyone listening, Oaxaca is not spelled W A H A C K A as I <laughs> thought it was like three years ago, probably. It is. How is it? What is it? O a x a c a. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. So anyone Correct. interested in Oaxaca listening to this, that's you got You're not going to find it googling with a, with a W. <laughs> no, you will find a mezcal branch mm. called Oaxaca. Okay. With Somebody's clever. All right. So we're going to move into our listener question now, and this one is is very appropriate, and we can probably have a good, lively conversation about that. This question is from Rachel in. North Dakota. She says, I've always wanted to go to Oaxaca for the Dia de Muertos, but I'm afraid that it's too cliche. If I go, what should I do? <laughs> Eat oh sugar skulls. And, and so, so here, this is the thing about this question. Like we came to Oaxaca because we wanted to go there, but we intentionally made sure that Dia de Muertos happened while we were there. Uh, we planned to celebrate it in the city. But while we were there, literally everybody that we talked to was like, no, you got to go to Etla. You got to go to one of the small towns outside of the city and just party with the locals all night. And so we did that. And it was like, 
I will never forget that night. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. I was not <laughs> on drugs, but I felt like I was on drugs. Like it was that, it was that like mind fucking of an experience. Like it was, it was unbelievable. So if you do go to Oaxaca, I would further that. I would say, you know, do it, go with like uh Quixote Adventuras, go to a freaking tour and have them take you out of the city uh, uh, to party. I would echo that. Like, I mean, it's not too cliche to come. It's a really incredible time to see the city. It's so lively. The buildings, all the edifices, is that a word? Edificios are like... Edify. Edify are dressed with like all these flowers. It's amazing. And I'm definitely not an expert on like cultural, what's okay culturally. Like the only thing I would say is like, if you go to a cemetery, which is a very popular thing to do, like be respectful of people who are there visiting their their lost loved ones. Like if you want to take a photo of someone, like think twice if that's if that's really something you want to do and like definitely ask before you do it. Because like at the end of the day, for a lot of people who are coming to Oaxaca, it's just a sight to see. But like actually it's a very deeply rooted cultural, culturally significant and like familially significant event for a lot of people. I don't happen to be one of them. Like I get the privilege of being like an observer. But um, yeah, just like be smart about it and be respectful. And definitely come and go with Coyote. They're the best. Yeah, I echo Tim on. I think the whole idea of people yeah, being uh, nervous about going and being visiting during a certain time being cliche, going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, going to Mexico for Dia de los Muertos, it, it's, it's all in your own head. I don't think anyone is looking at you, judging you, being like, Oh, of course, there's this American showing up for, you know, our holiday again. I guess it's all, I think, a self-conscious thing. I think go where you want, go when you totally. want. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Catherine, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. And uh, any, anywhere you want people to go to learn more about you? Um, you could go to CatherineTanzi.com to learn more about me. Definitely. Or you can find nice. me on Instagram, Catherine underscore Tansy. Okay, here we are in the hot take section, and we're going to put Evan on the hot seat first. Okay, Evan, question number one. Are Boston accents bullshit? And the reason I ask this is because you don't have one, and Alex Boylan seems to have pretty easily ditched his. Yeah, I don't blame him for discarding it. Uh, I hate the Boston accent, personally. I think it makes... It's impossible for me to say this without sounding like a douchebag but i just feel like it makes you sound like you never graduated from third grade and there's obviously different degrees of it there's like the super super heavy and then there's the kind of having a hint of it a hint is fine because that kind of i, I like hearing that elsewhere because that makes me even when we did uh we interviewed alex and even gareth who's from west newberry they both have a hint of that accent and i that yeah i kind of like that because that's just it reminds me of uh of something I'm, I'm familiar with uh, reminds me of home, but a strong accent. No. Do you think that Coloradoans have an accent? I don't think Coloradoans have an accent, but I think Coloradans have a dialect. I think for sure. But what do you mean dialect? Like words they use? Like yeah, I, and I think it's it's similar to the Southern California accent, maybe or dialect. Probably maybe not as distinct as that, but I think it it kind of goes like that. Like it's something that kind of reflects the, 
outdoorsy lifestyle of Colorado, you know, whereas like, well, like what, what's your dialect? What's some words that you would use that I would not use from new England? Stoked. Um, I say, I say I bro a lot. I do say bro a lot. I can't get away from the fact that I do that. That's, I think everyone says bro. Um, Hmm. I'm trying to think if I've heard any Colorado or like, words. just like, I will say ski centric, ski centric words, like, like pow and shralp and stuff like that, that if, you, if you're not involved in that scene, you you would be like, what is this idiot talking about? I mean, I don't speak in those terms, but if someone says pow to me, I I know what they mean. I don't think they're narrating like a 90s era comic book to me. <laughs> I know I know they're talking about snow, but I, I will say, I think the one accent, the, when the Colorado accent does come out, the one instance I've noticed it is when people from Colorado say the word Colorado. Yeah. Because I say Colorado. I think everyone else says Colorado. People from Colorado say Colorado. Yeah, they do. I've, and it, that's how you know someone's from Colorado. It's funny that you say that because I actually wrote about that in a Matador article like six years ago. Like one of my first ever articles for Matador was about, uh, it was one of those uh, cultural identity pieces like how you know you were born and raised in, in Denver. And I, one of my main subheads was Less rod, more rad. And it's like, it could not be <laughs> yeah, more true. And I, I, other, I'm sure that comes into other words too. The, the rad and in place of the rod, I can't think of it. Cause the only time I hear it, it's, it's just so pronounced when it's like, oh yeah, like I was in Cal- Colorado. I'm from Cal- Colorado, not Colorado, Colorado. And it's, it's very noticeable to me. And you say it all the time. I notice when you say it, but no one else besides Coloradans pronounce it that way. And you gotta you gotta think that we're all doing it wrong and you guys are doing it right because you're from there. Well it's funny, I have since thought about that point. For whatever reason, I don't remember anything else I talked about in that article, but I remember that point. And I have many times thought about that point and been like, was that right? Like, do Coloradans that are native actually say rad, or is it just me and my friends? But I think it actually is a statewide thing. So Yeah. Yeah, I'll pay more attention now to like other other instances where the rad replaces the rod. So for a very distinct place, not not too much of an accent, unless unless you're me and you assign Coloradans a strange Canadian accent all the time. Oh, going for a hike today, bud. Oh, hey, yeah, yeah it's really cosmopolitan. Ooh, you're gonna hit up Tim Hortons get a nice brekkie brec- sandwich, eh? So I want to. We're going to get back to the uh, the uh, accents in a minute because I have another question about it. But my, I want to diverge real real quick for a moment about the Canadians. Uh, do you? Because okay. one thing I've noticed, and I read it again in a New York Times article this morning, Canadians always refer to their own cities as cosmopolitan. If you are ever talking or reading about Canada and they're t- and, and it's a Canadian doing the talking and they're talking about a city in Canada, they always put the word cosmopolitan in front of cities. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they're trying to prove that their cities are on par with other major cities around the world. I was about to say the same thing. Um, yeah, I think this is one of those situations where our takes are probably exactly the same because I think that this is in line with what I've been saying for the last, this seems to come up in the last like six episodes about Canadians, but I feel like Canadians are on an endless quest to prove that they are relevant, (laughs) especially with regard to their neighbors to the South. And 
by just by using the word cosmopolitan <laughs> it's it's that that's it it's like check out check us out like we have we have shopping malls we have skyscrapers like don't sleep on us america like we're we're we're, we're coming we're up here and yeah so that's that's exactly how i feel i don't know what's the what's the definition of the word cosmopolitan well it's always used in this tense to mean modern and cultural you know and it like the term that it was used i it was in an article by a a, a writer that i actually really like from new york dan Bo- or from canada he lives in montreal his name's dan bolevsky but he put cosmopolitan in front of canadian cities and literally the the paragraph would have been just fine and perhaps better if he would not have used the word cosmopolitan cosmopolitan adjective including or containing people from many different countries so it's a multicultural ah designation which is same thing it's like we were talking about it before canadians are very they are i would say probably more worldly than uh, americans i mm-hmm. think they have a more global awareness which is a good thing but it's not just about having the global awareness it's about letting everyone know you have a global awareness oh uh, yeah are they the vegans are they the vegans of countries like they have to tell you that they're the vegans they're the crossfitters they're the soul cyclers that's canada okay last question from my end what is it that you like about Blink-182? <laughs> I think it's the same thing that everyone likes about Blink-182 in the year 2021, which is that it reminds them of the year 2002. <laughs> yeah. I think it's that more than anything else. I think I probably like them more now than I did in 2002. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I really liked their music when I was in high school because I could relate to it because it's about high school life, you know. But now looking back on it, yeah, there's certainly that nostalgia. And I think they've become one of the leading definers of that for teenagers that were teenagers between the late 90s and the 20 aughts, you know. Yeah, it's more about representing a nostalgia for an era and like a fond reminiscence than it is about the actual music, even though I do genuinely enjoy the actual music. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree that I, I respect them more. I mean, I always did. I always defended them against the sellout arguments or whatever, when people Mm -hmm. would bring that up back in the day, but now I don't even think that's relevant. I think that they've, I mean, without Tom, it's, it's not the same, but I think that they've become such an icon of their generation of music that you can't really level that argument against them validly anymore so we talked a little bit in this episode about cultural appropriation have you ever appropriated another culture either accidentally or otherwise well i mean i guess you could say like i did not i was not around for like the 1970s and 1980s punk scene but i i fully dove into that community when i was a teenager and acted like it was my own so i maybe that would be an example of me doing that i mean i had a mohawk for a while and i dyed my hair all kinds of different colors and it's not you know like i grew up in a typical middle class house it's not like i was (laughs) a street punk kid that could you know claim that i was living in some commune you know so okay well then my question now becomes how did how did it feel being a sellout i don't know Am I a sellout? Because like I actually did play in a band for a long time and you know, spent a long chunk That's of my true. life doing that. I still listen to the music every day. So would you have ever no. sold out 
What would it have taken for you to sell out for Odie Paste? I don't know. I mean, that's that was always my thing with with defending Blink and other bands like you know Rancid, these bands that got really big from that scene. Like, okay, so these guys wake up every day and they live their dream and travel the world. You wake up every day and you go clock in for somebody else. Who's the actual sellout here? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next one. There was some news recently about Amsterdam moving its sex workers out of the red light district, essentially canceling the red light district and moving everyone to an area outside of the city where they weren't as, uh, couldn't be as big like tourist attractions in an effort to kind of uh, improve the image of Amsterdam, make it more family friendly. What do you think about that? I think it's part of a lot of things Amsterdam is doing to try to do that. I think Amsterdam is one place in the world that has become a spinning image of over-tourism. And the red light district has kind of been a part of that, along with the cannabis uh, coffee shops and just the whole central town culture. Um, Amsterdam probably needs to take steps. I, I don't know if that is the right one. I've, you know, I will say like when I was in Amsterdam, I walked through the red light district because I wanted to see it. And I was with my, you know, then girlfriend, now wife. We wanted to see it, so we went to it uh, just because we wanted to see what was going on. Um, and it was interesting. It was part of our experience in that city. So I don't know. I think it will drastically affect the the tourist experience there because I think a lot of people, whether or not they actually participate in the red light district, a lot of people like us walk through it just to see what's going on. Um, Do you I, think I, that's combined with this comes on the heels of Amsterdam also making it illegal for foreigners to visit its cannabis shops, its coffee yeah. shops. I mean, that of course so, will have a massive impact on, on that because Vegas in a lot of ways is, is, or excuse me, Amsterdam is, had kind of become the Vegas of Europe uh, largely because of that. It is the place where even Europeans go to party for the weekend. I remember, you know, when it, we were in Switzerland at a hostel talking to the bartender and he said that he was like, yeah, when we want to go party for a weekend, we get on a plane and go to Amsterdam. Do you think that it, it does more harm than good or detracts from what everyone loves so much about the vibe of Amsterdam, that it is this kind of sin city light of Europe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it it will. It will detract from that a little bit. But I think part of the motivation there is that they there are different groups of tourists that visit Amsterdam. Amsterdam has a lot of cultural attractions, a lot of museums a lot of historical tours that you can do both yeah. on foot, bike, and on the water. And 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 in general, I would say that the, the tourists that come there to smoke weed are not the highest spending tourists. So by sidelining those people, uh, they're honestly, from their perspective, and they're probably valid in this opinion, making the city more appealing to the residents and the tourists that come for other reasons. Other cultures having a more kind of sex positive outlook on, mm-hmm. on their society and not... Uh, not attaching shame to sexual expression. And that has always been very Amsterdam esque in my mind. Like Mm -hmm. they just put it front and center. It's in the middle of their historic district. Like families can like walk through the red light district. And it's like, it's kind of become this mainstream cultural thing, the way that Amsterdam and the Dutch view sexual expression almost that it's it's become part of everyday life. And it compared to the way that we handle it in the U.S., where it's almost more repressed and shoved off to the side in, uh, you know, backlit rooms of strip clubs and you can't you can't see it. 
and I almost feel that it's a shame now that they're going to lose that aspect that makes them so unique, not just in Europe, but in the rest of the world too. I agree. I, I think that, um, yeah, I think that uh, having a more sex positive approach is, is good for society in general. And I think Amsterdam has been, and, and, and that, that country in general has been a good example of that. However, I think that there could be the argument saying that they are going back to their roots with that by moving it away from the people that come there to exploit it and, and don't Mm -hmm. understand the sex positive aspect of it and just view it as like going to, going to hook up with a prostitute. The whole GameStop fiasco with the investing is this, do you think the start now of a new phase and trend of bro investing? I do think it's going to be a trend. I don't think it's a new one. I think there has been a lot of that. I mean, um, I will say that a lot of the investments I've made are based off of blogs that I've read and my own feelings about, you know, the future of renewable energy. But honestly, I think there's always been a bro aspect to, to investing. I think that the, the term finance bro exists for a reason. And I think that a lot of those, um, now small time investors uh trying to get in on that are it's uh, they they come at it from the an angle that they think they're like this kind of punk rock underdog that's going to come in and mess up the system but really they want the same thing as as the big dog and the hedge funds and everybody else that's putting money into wall street it's it's really all the same yeah it's this it's this david versus goliath story that's kind of being perpetuated you know the the little guy the i mean to use an app expression the robin hood um story of like oh these rich guys are trying to uh they're they're so greedy and they're always keeping the little guy down and look at us like we're just this band of merry robbers who are taking from the rich and giving to the poor it's like if you had the chance if you had enough money to invest in a hedge fund you'd fucking invest in a hedge fund right you'd be that big guy so it's more about how people choose to broadcast their own experience to the public and to yeah. their their followers. Yeah, you know the thing with Robinhood is I think it's great what they've done to push stock trading uh, costs down, the actual costs of the trade, so that now TD Ameritrade and and the other major players have have bailed on. Uh, charging a fee to trade a stock. I think that's great. I personally have taken advantage of that. I think it's awesome. However, I don't think there's anything that's like Robin Hood-esque about investing in stocks. Like you're not, just because you are making money on a stock that you invested in doesn't mean somebody else needs to be losing money. You don't need to be taking money from anybody else. Like you're not, they're not inherently, other than the fact that they've kind of changed the game uh, from that perspective, which they did by getting rid of the fees. That's great. You can't take that away from them. But the actual investing in the stocks, they're not doing anything different. Anybody could have always gone and bought GameStop stock. Anybody could always go buy into Vanguard with $100. You don't have to be a millionaire to do these things. And to be honest, you never did. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of summarizing it. Um, that's it for me. Cool. Well, that's going to do it for another week of No Blackout Dates. Please head over to Apple, shoot us a review, let us know what you think, let you, let us know what you thought about the whole GameStop fiasco. I, I will say that I was kind of with Evan. I, I wasn't in favor or against it, really. I just 
honestly kind of thought it was ridiculous, but we'll see you next week. <laughs>